I think most of you may have seen this on Facebook, but many of you know that Benjamin's from Canada, but Benjamin has now become an official American citizen, so let's welcome him. Thanks, brother. He still says A, but we're working on that. So. All right, if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 13. I want to welcome those of you who are visiting. If you don't have a Bible, we have plenty of extras. We hope that you'll join us in learning God's Word, the Bible, and allowing it to have a significant impact in our lives. A couple quick announcements. First of all, don't forget November 9th. That's coming up. That is just a couple Saturdays away in which we are having this evangelism seminar for non-evangelists. It's just a few hours on a Saturday morning. But a couple things real quick. If you are a senior, if, if you're 55 or older, next Sunday there's going to be a potluck luncheon for seniors 55 and older in the Woodside room. There's already, look like about 40 signed up. So um, John Andrews and his wife Nan and Kathy Kansky are right at the table back there. Just feel free to sign up. The long-term goal is that it'll be a time of fellowship, prayer, and discussion about more opportunities for ministry to seniors. We have a lot of seniors here. Some of them have connected. Some of them haven't. Some of you know seniors who might want to come to something like this as a chance to engage and meet other Christian seniors or find out about the Lord. And so be, be a prayer for that. There's a sign-up in the table if you're interested. Also, for those of you who have... Christians have different views about trick-or-treat or whether... Christians should trick-or-treat, and um, I saw a skeleton just today, and I asked him if he was trick-or-treating, but he was so distracted, he said, the wind's so strong here, he goes, I turn the air down, it's going right through me, so I was like, all right, but I'm sorry. For those of you who um, would prefer not to do trick-or-treating, tonight the youth group is going down to Calvary Baptist Church, they have an alternative, it's called Trunk-or-Treat, and it will be from... 5 to 7 p.m., you can contact Pastor Jeremy. But it's a wonderful opportunity to take your kids for something because I respect parents who are like, I'd rather not participate in that. But then your kids end up sometimes resenting. Hey, how come we don't get candy? It's kind of like Jehovah's Witnesses going, how come we never got Christmas? So if there's ways that we can encourage our kids without compromising our convictions, that's great. So at this time, I'm going to ask you to look with me in Mark chapter 13. We're studying a passage of scripture that's about prophecy. And what interests me is the fact that people are concerned about the future, particularly now that we have a new wrench in there called global warming. And so my wife who teaches eighth grade in the Pensbury Middle Schools has had students say, what difference does it make? We're not gonna be here in 12 years. So there's a, there's a belief system out there that within 12 years, global warming the earth's going to implode, we're all going to die. But in addition to that, from a broader perspective, people have always wondered what's going to happen in the future, right? So the cool thing about the Bible, among many other things, if the Bible says these words have been inspired by God, God superintended the authors to write these, the Lord didn't leave us without any sense of what's coming, right? And so one of the sure and firm things about being a Christian is the Bible says in all wisdom and insight, God made known to us his will in the future. And so we can study the Bible. Now, the problem is some people read so much into it, they're, they're gone. we've got it all figured out. And I don't think the Bible's written that way. So we're not supposed to grope around in the darkness, but we're not supposed to know, oh yeah, it's going to be December 7th. And so 
in Matthew or Mark 13, Jesus has begun to discuss the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. So remember, Jesus lived and died around 33 AD. Right before he died, the week that he was going to die, they were looking at the temple and going, geez, check this out. This is beautiful. Seven wonders of the world. We love this thing. And Jesus goes, don't get too attached to this temple. Don't get too attached. The whole thing's going to be torn down. Not a stone will be left upon another. And so they were like, what? And he's like, well, let me explain to you. And so last week we saw in verses 1 through 13 that Jesus was telling them that in their lifetime that that temple would be torn down, that they would be hated, that they would be brought before kings and governors, that the gospel would go out to the ends of the earth. But in verse 14, Jesus turns to something that's troubling in that you're like, when is this talking about? So I want to tell you something that perhaps if you're new to Bible prophecy, as you grow as a Christian, the Bible talks about learning the meat of the word. And so as we think about Bible prophecy, sometimes when the prophets of old were predicting events, these events might have a gap of time between them, but if you're looking at it from a long distance, it just looks like one big mountain, not realizing that that one big mountain may have another mountain behind it, separated by a space of time. So, for example, in Isaiah 9, 6, it says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And we're like, oh, that's about the birth of Christ. But then the next phrase says, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. And the rule and reign of Christ as the governmental Lord over all the earth is at the second coming. So there was a gap of time. So what Jesus is going to do is he's going to take the theme song from the Titanic. You remember when you're hanging out on this, you sing, near, far, wherever you are. And so I thought about that. I thought that's a good illustration, near, far. If you can keep that in your mind as we're reading Mark 13, Jesus is speaking about events that are near. He'll say, these things, these things. But then he will transition into, in those days, those days. And so my suggestion is in that the first 13 verses, these are near. These are things that Jesus says is going to happen in your lifetime. But now in verse 14, he introduces us to a new thing. He says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountain. So as you're being introduced to Bible prophecy or as you're, you're, you're learning more about it, there's two terms in this chapter that are important. One's the term abomination of desolation. Okay? We want to wrap our head around that. that. That's an Old Testament term. And then the other term is called the tribulation. So look at verse 24. In those days after that tribulation. So the Bible clearly speaks about these two events, the abomination of desolation, and then it speaks about the tribulation. Okay, so, so let's, let's start with this. In verse 14, when Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, let the reader understand. Now, Jesus didn't say let the reader understand. Mark added that. I want you to write down a couple verses because we don't have time. This isn't like a three-hour study. But I want you to look up three verses in Daniel 9, or Dan, in the book of Daniel. In Daniel 9, Daniel describes a man who will make a covenant with many, 
But then it says, on the wings of abomination will come one who makes desolate. Doesn't tell us a whole lot about him. But in Daniel 11, he speaks about this man and he says, forces from him will arise. He will desecrate the sanctuary. He will do away with the regular sacrifice and they will set up an abomination of desolation. So he's going to come into the temple. He's going to stop the regular sacrifice. He's going to set something up that Daniel calls the abomination of desolation. The third verse is in Daniel 12. He says, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now, I want you to track with me. When Daniel wrote about the abomination of desolation, it was somewhere in the 500s B.C. So Christ isn't going to be on earth for 500 years. Between the end of the Old Testament with, with the prophet Malachi until the time of John the Baptist and, and Christ, that's 400 years. And during those 400 years, God didn't just shut down and abandon Israel. During that time, the Israelites were under the Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and ultimately the Romans. But while they were under the Greek domination in the 100s, there was a very wicked Greek king named Antiochus Epiphanes. He was actually a Syrian general. He hated the Jews. And he came into Jerusalem, and in 168 B.C., he erected an altar to Zeus in the Jewish temple. That was the most hideous blasphemy that could be imagined. That was a, an abomination beyond description. And when he did that, they were killing Jews. And it was during that time that a, a, a Jew by the name of Judas Maccabeus started a revolt. And that time in the intertestamental period was called the Maccabean Revolt of which, for a brief time, the Jews gained independence. They were able, by guerrilla warfare, to overthrow the Greeks. Now, this will help you because when you see your Jewish friends and they're like, Happy Hanukkah. Yeah, I love that Hanukkah. I love how God set up Hanukkah in the Bible, Passover and Hanukkah. <clears throat> Hanukkah's not in the Bible. Hanukkah's a Jewish celebration celebrating their independence from the Greeks after this abomination of desolation. So in the apocryphal books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees, which we don't believe are inspired scripture, it describes this event. In 1st Maccabees 1, it says, as he describes Antiochus, it says, the king erected the desolating abomination upon the altar of burnt offering, and the surrounding cities of Judah, they built pagan altars. And so, so I go, all right, so any Jew in Jesus' day knew about Daniel's prediction of the abomination of desolation. They also knew that it happened in 164 B.C. But now Jesus speaks about it as though it's going to happen again. He goes, in verse 14, he didn't say, remember when they had that abomination? He's putting it in the future. He says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, then let those who are Judea flee to the mountain. In fact, Matthew even adds, when you see the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke about, okay? 
So at this point, we go, all right, well, what, what is he talking about? Now, remember, he has just told them, in a few years, Jerusalem's going to be ransacked. The whole city's going to be ruined. And you better be ready to get out when it happens. And we know from history that in 70 AD, the Roman general Titus came into Jerusalem, surrounded the city of Jerusalem with, with, with those barricade walls, and eventually just devastated, came in, destroyed the temple, burned it to the ground. And so my sense here is that Jesus is, first of all, talking to them about what's about to happen in 70 AD. So, so he's saying to them, when you see the abomination of desolation, which in their mind, they don't know exactly what this means, but he's going, it's going to happen to you. When you see that, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down or enter in to get anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. But pray that it may not happen in winter. The reason for that is the winter season in Jerusalem, the, the rivers and, and creeks are swollen, so you can't escape. You can't get out. You can't cross the rivers. So what I think he wanted them to understand was when the Romans come and they're about to destroy Jerusalem, you Christians need to get out, which they did. Many, many Jews were able to escape. Many of them went to Egypt, right? But then Jesus speaks as though, wait a minute, can this only be 70 AD? Because look at verse 19. He goes, for those days will be a time of tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God has created until now. Now, if he stopped right there, I'd be like, okay, I get it. That's going to be the worst thing that's ever happened to these Jewish people on planet Earth. And it's awful. Like, if you want to read extra biblical history of what the Romans did to the Jews, it was horrible, the brutality with which they raped and pillaged and burned and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, which, by the way, that's why we make a big deal. Remember, at that point, the Jews didn't have a nation. From 70 AD, they did not have independence. There was no nation of Israel all the way until 1948. Like, they went almost 1,900 years without having any independence. But the point would be this, that if he stopped and said, this would be the worst thing that's ever happened, but then he says, and it never shall. And that makes us go, well, wait a minute. Does that mean that any tribulation that's ever going to happen on earth has already happened? And the answer is no, because Jesus is going to go ahead in verse 24, it says, in those days after that tribulation. So, so my suggestion is this. When Daniel said there's an abomination coming where some wicked man's going to go into the temple, he's going to blaspheme God and he's going to persecute Jews, that the first time that happened was in 164 BC under Antiochus. The Jews celebrated that. The second time that it was going to happen from Jesus' standpoint is in 70 AD when Titus the general is going to come in. But there's a third time that it's going to happen. The final abomination is still coming. And we know that from other passages of Scripture. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul said that there will be a man of lawlessness who will be revealed. 
He will take his seat in the temple of God and he will claim himself to be God and he will cause the sacrifice to cease. So this is why if you've heard anything about Bible prophecy, you hear people talking about a coming tribulation and a coming antichrist, okay? So this is all rooted in this idea that Jesus says there's going to be an abomination of desolation and then there's going to be a terrible tribulation. But notice that the tribulation in verse 24, he said, in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened. And then it says, verse 26, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So if you want to know what's going to happen in the future, the Bible says that there's going to be a great tribulation on this earth that's hideous and terrible. It's so, so devastating that there's nothing ever preceded it, nothing ever will follow it. So let's keep reading, and we'll try to put this together. So look in verse 19. We'll just try to read through the chapter. <clears throat> For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation till now. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. So whatever it is, it's so horrible on the earth that it would have killed the whole earth. Right? Everyone on planet Earth would be destroyed. Well, what, what's going on? Well, the book of Revelation describes things like 100-pound hailstones, stars falling, a third of the ocean turning to blood, famines, wars, hideous, horrible, horrendous things happening. But then it says, if the Lord had sh didn't shorten those days, and you're like, well, what do you mean by shorten? Did you shorten it from 50 years to 20 years? And that's debated. Christians debate, how long will this tribulation last? Some suggest it will be seven years. Some suggest it will be three and a half years. But the point is that God cuts it short, he says, for the sake of the elect. Because there's always a people that God is bringing to himself on this earth. But remember, these guys aren't probably able to anticipate that he's describing two different things. So remember that we said this last week. Right before Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, there were several men who rose up and said, I'm the Messiah, follow me. There was a guy named Thutis, and there was also an Egyptian. And so Jesus is warning the disciples of the first century, hey, don't be duped if some clown comes along and says, I'm the Messiah. So look at verse 21. <clears throat> Then if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, or behold, he's there, don't believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders in order, if possible, to lead the elect astray. But take heed, I have told you everything in advance. So I think that they were grounded. They're like, no, no, that's not Christ. We're not going after that guy. But for us, as Christians, this is also a prophecy about the future. It's a prophecy about the future. The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 2, and I want you to carefully read that chapter, it says, when this man of lawlessness, this Antichrist is revealed, it says he will use signs and wonders and all deception of wickedness, right? He's going to be powerful. This Antichrist will get power from Satan Bible says in Revelation, he can call fire down from heaven. He can, he can, he'll die and be raised from the dead. So he will have 
very convincing power to persuade the world to follow after him, to go, he's the one. And the Christians are being warned, don't go after him. And one of the most sobering truths in that passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says this. It says that this Antichrist who's coming and could come in our lifetime, it says he's going to be so powerful that he will deceive people. And then it says this. And for those who would not receive the love of the truth to be saved, God will send them a strong delusion and they will believe this Antichrist. And they will be judged because when they had the opportunity, they wouldn't receive the love of the truth to be saved, but took pleasure in wickedness, okay? So here's what we need to think about. There are a whole lot of people who go, I don't know if this Christian stuff's for real. You know what I mean? But, but, but you guys talk about these great cataclysmic events in the future. If I start seeing all these things happen, man, then I'm going to get on board. Well, why wouldn't you get on board now? The Bible says because men won't receive the love of the truth. They take pleasure in their wickedness. They don't want to turn and surrender to Christ. They want to live for themselves. So mark this down. If you're one of them or you know somebody who's one of them, a young person, I'll wait till I get older. Don't assume that what you think you might want to do now is what you'll want to do then. Because the Bible, you read it for yourself. God will send them a strong delusion and they will believe a lie and they will be judged. Well, that seems mean. No, it says because they would not receive the love of the truth to be saved. When they had the opportunity, they decided to take pleasure in unrighteousness. So don't allow yourself to be fooled into thinking, I could just wait, watch, and I'll make my decision when I see everything happening. So if your heart's being drawn towards Christ, and you're worried, what are people going to think about me? Or I don't know whether I want to give this up. Rush to Jesus and just believe in him and trust him so that you're ready. But now in verse 24, Jesus is going to talk about this tribulation. In those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken, and then they shall see the Son of Man coming in clouds with power and great glory. Now mark this down. That's too late. If you think that when you see Jesus coming from heaven, you'll go, Change your mind, I want to follow you. Too late. The Bible says men will hide from the presence of the Lamb. They will say, hide me under the rocks, for the great day of his wrath has come. So it's, it's important to give your life to Christ and believe in him now, so that when he comes, it's too late. So notice what's going to happen. He's going to come, and he's going to gather his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of the heavens. Now, if you've thought about Bible prophecy before and you've thought about this awful tribulation where many believers will perish and be tortured by this Antichrist and many people will die, you probably have heard discussions on this. Am I going to be there? Am I going to have to go through this tribulation? And I want you to understand that there are two broad views on this. But some of you have only been exposed to one view. You may have attended a church where you were told, don't worry about it. We clearly are not going to go through that. So you're gold. 
Just, just thank the Lord that you're not going to go through that. I want you to think about several things. Number one, that view of a pre-tribulational rapture, that there's like two comings of Jesus to take us home and then we don't go through the tribulation. Number one, that view is very new. Nobody was really pushing that to the 1600s. Okay? Doesn't mean it's wrong, but it's not what the church was teaching for the first 1600 years. Number two, it is kind of odd to think of people being physically taken out of the ground and with their physical bodies going up to heaven for seven years while Jesus puts his tribulation on the earth. Not impossible. But what I want you to do is think about this. You're like, come on, man, I already read Tim LaHaye. I already know all the events of what's going to happen. And I go, yeah, that might be part of the problem. So what I want you to think about is this. There are some inferences in the New Testament that perhaps the church will be spared from the tribulation. But I feel very strongly that we should not teach it as though it's, it's gospel doctrine as equal to the crucifixion and resurrection for many reasons, right? Because if you look at the arguments, and there's about five of them, God wouldn't beat up on his bride. I'm going, millions of Christians have been persecuted, right? The Bible says God's going to spare us from the wrath to come. Well, yeah, the wrath of hell. So here's what I think is a better thing to do, to say, hey, I should be aware of both views. I should be aware that there's a, a, a real possibility that we will not go through the tribulation. But I should also be aware that we may very well go through the tribulation, and I need to prepare myself by asking God to give me the faith and courage to even be willing to die. And you're like, that's unthinkable. Not to most people on planet Earth right now. We just happen to live in little sheltered, secluded America. But all over the world, there are many people that are waking up every day wondering, am I going to be martyred today as a Christian? So I think it's far more balanced to learn both views. One's called the pre-trib rapture. We won't be here. The other one's called the post-trib rapture. We will go through the tribulation. If you're reading this, there's no pre-trib rapture in this passage. I'm not suggesting that proves it's not. But there's nothing here where Jesus is planned. But don't worry, you won't be here. So here's an example just to think about. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that passage that I just kept mentioning about the Antichrist, the Thessalonians thought that the day of the Lord had come. They thought that they were already in the tribulation. Here's what Paul said to them. Don't let anybody deceive you that you're in the tribulation. I already told you that the tribulation or the day of the Lord does not come until the man of lawlessness is revealed, takes himself in the temple, begins to do signs, ceases the sacrifice, and deceives many. Don't let anybody deceive you that you're already in the tribulation. My question would be, if Paul believed that no Christian's going to be there, why waste all the oxygen and, and ink? Why not just say something like this? Whoever told you that you're in the day of the Lord, stop being scared. We're not going to be there. But he doesn't do that. He says, we're not in the day of the Lord. The Antichrist isn't here, right? So all I'm saying is, that ought to cause me to go, wait, is this idea that we're not going to be here so clearly taught that I should just take it and say, I know that's what God said. And here's one of my concerns. 
if the pre-trib rapture is not clearly taught in the Bible, there's going to be a whole lot of disillusioned Christians, right? When they go through the tribulation going, God, you didn't keep your word. And what if God says, oh, I'm keeping my word. I just didn't keep Tim LaHaye's word. And I don't mean that against Tim LaHaye. So all I want you to do is understand, I love, I have some of my dearest friends are pre-trib. Godly, great, careful Bible teachers. And they are 100% convinced that we're not going to go through the tribulation, right? And you can listen to their arguments. But I just want you to know that any one of their arguments does have some counter-arguments. So they'll say, for example, when you read Revelation 6 through 19, it never mentions the church. So we're not going to be here. And I go, well... Yeah, but it mentions saints and followers of the Lamb, right? So should I assume that because it does not use the word church, that that proves we're not going to be there? To me, that's where I say I should at least be aware of both views. And Jesus' point here is not come and be a Bible decoder. His point is we need to be ready. So let's keep reading. Verse 28. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that the summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognizing that he's near right at the door. Now this verse has troubled people. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. People go, well then, wait, what? I think Jesus is simply talking here about the tearing down of the temple. This generation, I'm living in 33 AD, in 70 AD, this temple's going to be torn down, okay? Heaven and earth will pass away, my words will not pass away. But then, when it comes to his final coming and the tribulation, notice how carefully he words this. He says, but of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven. Now, here comes the kicker nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now, that should, that should cause you to go, whoop, whoop, whoop. Uh, Pastor, clarifying Jesus, you've been telling us Jesus is divine. You've been telling us Jesus is God. You've been telling us Jesus is Lord. You've been telling me that to be a Christian, I must confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart and be willing to follow him. Yes, I have. Well, if he's God, if he's Lord then how could he say, I don't know? And what I want to suggest here is we need to understand that there's a mystery to the incarnation. The Bible says, great is the mystery that God was manifested in the flesh. So when Jesus took on humanity and he added a human nature, there's this God-man who says and does things that are mysterious, right? How can the Bible say Jesus increased in wisdom and stature when he's God? It's like, hey, Jesus, you want to take, want to take Spanish? No, I know all languages. Hey, Jesus, want to learn math? I created math, right? But yet, because he was a human, he had to learn, okay? The Bible says God cannot be tempted, but then we read, Jesus was tempted. So there's this mystery that says, 
Jesus was both a human and a man. I mean, and God. So when he says, I don't know the hour of my coming, I don't think he was winking going, at least my man side doesn't, but my divine side does. I think what he's modeling for us here is the mystery of going, being a God and man, Jesus gets it what it is to be a man and to not have all the answers, right? This explains why Jesus could say, I'm going up to the cross to die for your sins. And then when they hang him there, he goes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're like, geez, what are you, bipolar? No, he's a man. He's a God man. And so I think what Jesus, by saying, I don't even know, is simply saying, look, if I don't even know, and I'm trying to be ready, then how much more should you and I be ready? Because you know what the kicker is? Five times in this passage, he says, stay awake, be on the alert, be ready, be alert. So that's the point here. He's not saying, make sure you get your Bible chart out and put this before that and that before this, I before E, except after C, and seven bowls, seven seals. But rather, let's look at the application. He says in verse 33, take heed... Keep on the alert, for you don't know when the appointed time is. Now, mark that down. You don't know. So whenever people are like, signs of the times, Brother Allen, we are in the last days. We have to understand that people have been saying that since the first century. In fact, the Bible says that when Jesus came to this earth, in the last days, God spoke through his son. So there's a tension, there's a mystery here to say, well, wait a minute. These guys thought that Christ was going to come in their lifetime. Paul says, the Lord shall come from heaven and we who are alive will be caught up. He didn't say, those who are alive 2,000 years from now. So it's odd, it's strange to say, God's giving us some signs to look for, but yet he's saying, be ready because it's not when you think it's going to be. Okay, so what does that look like? He says, well, it's like a man who went away on a journey upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task. He commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Now, here it is again. You're like, Jesus, I think I get your point. Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, midnight, cock crowing, or morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And you're like, wait, what? I'm not allowed to sleep? I have sleep with one eye open in case Jesus comes back? No, that's not what he means. This is a metaphor when he says, lest he find you asleep. And you're like, okay, Jesus, so I think I get it. I think you're telling those 12 guys right then, don't miss it. And Jesus goes, no, Tom, you don't get it. I'm telling the people of Riverstone Church, look at verse 37, what I say to you, I say to all. That includes you, Tom. That includes every believer here in this church. That includes those of you who are not believers. What I say to you is be on the alert. Say, well, I, I don't, I don't, what, what does that mean? Should I be paranoid? Every time I hear a horn, I go, that's the Lord. Every time I say a flash of sky, that's Jesus. Now, I think, I think the Bible has this paradigm for what it means to live a watchful, alert life. We'll start with this. A couple nights later, Jesus says to Peter and James and John, could you guys come and pray with me? 
And they go over here, and he goes over there, and he comes back, and he goes, what are you guys doing? You're sleeping? Would you please watch and pray? Goes away. Comes back. Peter, why aren't you awake? Watch and pray. Your spirit is willing. Your flesh is weak. Be only alert. Peter, come on. Wake up, right? So I think there's a couple things that you and I could think about. It becomes very easy as a Christian, and particularly in the ease and comfort of America culture, to doze off spiritually. You're like, well, I'm not using drugs, and I'm cheating on my wife. No, way bigger than that. What does it mean to be on the alert, to be watchful and careful? So I want to give you an analogy. Back in chapter 7, when Jesus talked about the evil things that can come out of our heart, I said we should have on a heart monitor, okay? I'm going to add a second thing. Keep your watch on. Keep your watch on, okay? Well, what does that look like? Well, the first and foremost thing is I have to watch over my own heart, my own personal relationship with Christ. No one can manage that for me, right? The Bible says, Watch over your own heart with all diligence. Paul said, pay close attention to yourself, your teachings, and your behavior. So a watchful Christian is a Christian who regularly, I would suggest daily probably, spend some time praying and reflecting in the word of God and making sure that to the best of their ability, they are trusting and obeying Christ, okay? In other words, there's no glaring thing where they're like, I know the Lord wants me to stop doing this, but I don't want to stop. I know I should spend more time in prayer than on Facebook, but I'm, I'm, I'm too tired. I'm too busy. I'm too this. I'm too that. So just from a personal standpoint, a watchful Christian is a person who's alone with Christ on a regular basis. I cannot stress this enough. This is not optional. When Jesus said, ask God to let us not enter temptation and deliver us from evil, he didn't say do that once a week. The same prayer said, give us our daily bread. So if I'm asking for bread daily, I ought to be asking for God to help me to be watchful and protect me and keep me from straying. The songwriter said it this way. I don't know what these things are that fell on the floor, but I think they're earplugs, and that's kind of gross. Um, I don't even want to know. Don't shake my hand afterward. Okay. <laughs> so listen. I start with myself. I say, Lord, I don't want to be deceived. Search me, O God, and know my heart. If I'm aware of disobedience in my thoughts, actions, attitudes, laziness, if my values are off, if I'm not seeking your face, if I'm not witnessing, living for you in the word, forgive me, Jesus. You got to help me here. It's tough. There's so many things pulling at me. Help me to watch. So first and foremost, we watch over our souls. But then secondly, we watch over one another. In Ephesians chapter 6, it says, with all prayer and petition, we pray and watch for one another. The first place that you should be watching is for your loved ones. Watching and praying, if you're a parent, for your children, if you're married, for your spouse, if you're single, for some of your family or, or, or your, your circle, if you're a widow, um, for your grandkids, just be watching. And then watching and praying for the church. Like none of us is immune to, to falling asleep and falling away from the Lord. And the beaches of time are full of Christians who were on fire for the Lord 
and they lost their way. And how dare we think, well, that couldn't happen to us. So Jesus is going, just be watchful, which means this. I almost have to remind myself on a daily basis. There's only one reason I'm here on this planet still. It's not to live for myself. Jesus died for me that I would live no longer for me, but for him. What does that look like? Well, one thing is to anticipate that he's coming. And if he's coming, what's the most important thing? Is it making a lot of money? No. It's that seeing as many people as possible walking with Christ. The Bible already tells us why he hasn't come yet. He's not slow about his promise. Second Peter 3 says, it's coming, the day of the Lord's coming, but he ha- he's not coming because he's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so while we have this opportunity while we're on the earth, what could be more important than the souls of our kids, the souls of our loved ones, the souls of our friends, the, the, the health of our church? And it doesn't mean we run home and scream at our kids and say, you better go to heaven, right? But that we're on our knees, we're praying to God and saying, Lord Jesus, draw them to yourself. It's not driving my tent peg so deep in this world that my greatest hope is my vacation or my greatest hope is my dream house or my greatest hope is my new job or my, or my this or my that or my kid becomes a doctor. It's I've been bought with the blood of Christ and during this short time on earth, I'm here to be a disciple and I'm learning to make other disciples. So I watch my pocketbook and I go, where's my money going? I watch my time and I go, where, where's most of my time going? I watch my, my entertainment and I, and I wonder how much time is in the word. I watch my commitment to the church and I go, how serious am I being about gathering with other Christians? Why haven't I joined a small group or or gotten involved with any level of service. It's really exciting to think that Jesus has given us this wonderful privilege. So this morning, I want to urge you, if you're not sure you're a Christian, this morning, the best thing you could do is just say, Jesus, I don't want to be left behind. I don't want you to come back and I go to hell. I believe that you died and rose again, and I'm willing to follow you. I ask you to be my Lord and Savior. Please forgive me. I trust that when you died on the cross, that you died to be my Lord and Savior. And Lord, I'm ready to tell people that. I'm ready to confess with my mouth that I'm in. I'm a follower of Christ. If you're not sure you're a Christian, there's lots of people that have doubts. But don't continue with that, just ignoring it, going, maybe someday I'll do it. The Lord wants you to have the assurance and peace that you're a forgiving follower. But then for the rest of us, one might say, hey, this is kind of a wake-up call. What a good one, right? My GPS is going, recalculate, stay on the alert. What's really important in life? Lord, help me to rearrange my priorities in such a way that I live for you. As we close, I want to ask you to pray for me. Many of you may not know this, but this summer, Pastor Joe Foch and I were having breakfast, and those of you who know Joe, he leads regular tours to Israel. So he said to me at breakfast, how would you like to go with me? And I said, I would like to go with you. And so I said that. And so tomorrow morning, um, I'm flying to, or going to Newark, and we're flying to Israel um, tomorrow until November 7th. So the next 11 days, I'll be over in Israel with Joe Foch. You're like, why are you asking me to pray for you then? Well, a um, couple things. One is I would appreciate prayer for my family, for the Lord to protect us. I'm not worried about the plane crashing or something, but just for our own spiritual growth, for the things that 
learn, that I can learn, be a blessing on the trip, and just that God will continue to strengthen our church and keep us, and I will look forward to being back November 7th, Lord willing. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you so much for the words of Jesus. Lord, we love you. We're so grateful that you endured the cross for us. And Lord, it's kind of cool to think that you could say, I don't know, that there's a mystery that somehow you could even understand our uncertainties. But there are times you told us to watch, but there are also many other times that you told us, do not be afraid, trust me. So help us, Lord, to trust you that even if we have to go through a tribulation, that you will never ask us to do what you won't enable us to do. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. I do hope that you would come before the tribulation. But Jesus, I don't think that's the point here. The point is to be watchful. So please draw those back who are straying from you. Help us who are discipling others to encourage them to watch. For those whose Christianity is only careless now, may they leave this morning with a deep and full commitment. And especially for those who might not be Christians yet. Lord, I pray that you will call them and that they will hear your spirit prompting them. And even this morning that they will make a decision to be a full follower of Christ, a forgiven believer. Thank you for our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week and thank you for your prayers.